just gonna do the Stefan warning. It's our advisory content correspondent, Stefan. This show, this show has everything. This book has everything. It has rape, misogyny, and so much more. It's even racist. Coming up next, it's a movie where two guys secretly have homoerotic tensions towards each other. It has a human organic wheat field. <laughs> What's when, that? It's when you throw grain at a fascist, and then several years later, you throw horse manure all over him. And when you run out of horse manure, you massage the horse's assholes so that they poop more, and then you smear it all over the fascist's face. Oh my god. Apparently this dude loves anal. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to do it. And guess what? If you thought things weren't described in detail, oh, they are. So. We see a close-up of a man's face. It could be the face of my great-grandfather or his father. Eyes shaded by a hat, a strong nose, and a thick beard. The palette is all brown and gray and olive, the colors of the soil itself. His coat is hooked on his finger and slung over his shoulder. Below his vest, his other hand grips the waist of his trousers. He is at the front of a crowd, and as the camera zooms out from the canvas, we see a woman to one side and an old man to the other. She holds a toddler by the belly and looks at the man, gesturing with her free hand as if to ask, why must we march? Beyond her, another man holds both hands out. He has nothing but questions. The old man's shirt is unbuttoned to his waist. He is hot and tired. The hands gesture everywhere, asking for something, whether for food, or for answers, or for power. A silent painting shows a crowd in a moving conversation barely held below a chatter. They all move together, just as the tiny dots that make up the picture we see. Dots of paint on the canvas, or dots of light on the screen. Little bursts of energy doing the work of a larger thing. The hands that work together, or fight, or hang outstretched and questioning. The painting of a hundred twenty years ago asks what the workers will do, what future they will move into when they all march together. Welcome to The Pointless Century, where we discuss history, culture, and politics in an attempt to understand what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. This episode will be the first of several considering Filippo Tommaso Marinetti's outrageous novel Mafarca the Futurist and Bernardo Bertolucci's film Novocento or 1900. Please be advised that both of these texts include numerous 
graphic depictions of situations and activities that many people will find troubling and offensive. We'll be thinking about politics, about art, about culture. I'll be telling a number of long-winded personal and historical stories. We'll be, as always, considering war and inevitably fascism. Thinking about that scene with Jack Nicholson's Joker in the art museum, and I think I described him as a perfect futurist anti-hero. Only he's not an anti-hero, he's a villain. He's a super villain, right? And here we get an example in Mafarka of a futurist hero. How do we define these things anyway? What is a hero? What is an anti-hero? What is a superhero? And what is a villain? I have examples of characters, but I couldn't specifically define it i think it's more ambiguous than it seems you kind of you know it when you see it because we don't want to think about it people are like "Eh, this dude's a hero everybody loves labels because labels are neat and nice and they fit well in your brain sometimes harley quinn is an anti-hero a hero is diana and then a villain is joker That's pretty good. I think it's also interesting because that gives us an entry into the viewpoint of the film itself, because one would think that, strictly speaking, Harley Quinn is supposed to be a supervillain. But obviously, if we center a whole movie around her and we're following her around, then she's no longer the villain. She becomes an antihero. So would that make the Joaquin Phoenix Joker an antihero then, since we had that film? I think it does. I think it does make Joaquin Phoenix's Arthur Fleck Joker an antihero and not a villain at all. That means that it's really the viewpoint of the text which determines those things, not necessarily the qualities of the character themselves. So like if we find somebody's motive, like why they do things, that doesn't necessarily make them an antihero, but we found the Joker's motive and Harley Quinn's motive in these films? Well, villains have motives, though often they're very petty. One thing that I really was disappointed with in The Dark Knight was that Heath Ledger's Joker doesn't exactly have no motive at all, but it's the kind of motive that's written by someone who doesn't take an antagonist's motives seriously enough. And we have a similar, though I'd argue more complicated thing going on with uh, the 1989 Batman's Joker. He does have a motive, but it's mostly he's in an antagonistic relationship. He's got a vendetta with respect to Batman. That's really what's going on there. It's more obvious because we get the whole origin story in that movie where Batman is to blame for his physical appearance. You could think of it as any number of other movies do, where if we were taking that from the Joker's perspective, the Joker would be the hero of the story, or then again, perhaps the anti-hero, depending on his personal qualities. And as you said, Diane in uh, the uh, Wonder Woman movie uh, is a good example of a superhero in that so heroic that like, well, what do we do with this person? <laughs> sort of yeah, a wet blanket. <laughs> a, a steel blanket. Steel blanket. Similarly useless, but really strong. So (laughs) what would you guys define as the line between hero and superhero? Just superpowers? Not just that. Then we could ask, well, how do we define superpowers? Does Batman have superpowers? (laughs) Batman's money is a superpower. Batman's technology is a superpower. 
But Iron Man is considered a superhero, okay. I feel. So, I mean, well, yeah, well, we can accept that. I think that I'm, I'm fine with Batman as a superhero, with Iron Man as a superhero. I think that most people accept that. But some people want to, you know, say that it has to go in explicitly superhuman direction. But do we only say that they're superheroes even though they could not be because they're just grouped in with other superheroes like Justice League and the Avengers? I think most people are going to take them to be superheroes. The, the, there is, a, I think, a group of fans or maybe non-fans, cynics, who are like, money can't be a superpower. And yet in our world, money is the only superpower. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they're realistic superheroes. Is Mafarka a superhero? Anna, take it away. No, back to you. Because <laughs> I think in my mind, in my mind, Marinetti clearly wants Mafarco to be a heroic figure. And yeah. he also has superpowers. So that makes him a superhero, right? Stupidly heroic. Like, could you be more obvious? People would say yes, but he's a tryhard. Like, no, he's no, he's not. He's a tryhard? Marinetti is. He's like, oh, look at my muscles. Look at me commanding these troops. Huh, 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 huh. Look at the way I described this scene. Isn't he heroic? <laughs> and the answer is no, he's not. <laughs> no, he he's wants not. him to be. No, he acts like he is, but he, from what I've read so far with this summary. Well, um, I, <laughs> <laughs> I guess, again, the question is what do we define as heroic? I'm perfectly okay with taking as heroic what the text defines as heroic. If this guy writes it as here's a heroic figure that we should all look to as we move into the future, then like I can object to the story. I can say like you're a silly man, but nonetheless, within the world of this story, this is a superhero. Yeah, you're probably right. It's just so weird to think of him that way. And maybe so intentionally stupid. weird, especially with the way that it ends. Right. So much of this is whether Marinetti wants it to be or not filtered through Christianity, filtered through things he's borrowing from the culture that he's coming out of, even if he wants to be quite uh, different and new. So the story about how I came into contact with this movie, Novacento, is kind of weird because I didn't see the version of it that we saw. There are two versions of this movie, which sometimes happens when you have something that's five hours and 15 minutes long and a lot of it is just nudity. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and if you're an American buying VHS tapes, I was living in, in West Philly back in, oh, probably 07 or 08, uh, which oh meant gosh. that... It was sort of like, given like the level of poverty I was at and the kind of neighborhood that it was, it was sort of like living in the 90s. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I saw it in a uh, used bookstore that I used to go to that was literally called Mostly Books. It was my favorite place to go. Um, and it was just like this really, really rundown bookstore, but it was huge and it had lots and lots of used books, but also used VHSs and eventually, uh, you know, used LPs once people started getting into buying LPs more. We love and, that. And I saw it and just based on what it looked like, I was like, this is fascinating. And it's called 1900. And I even think that in that cut, they claim that the two main characters are born on January 1st, 1900, which is not the case. Mm -hmm. um, they're born 
in the full cut on the day that Giuseppe Verdi dies, which is the 27th of January, 1901. So it actually doesn't seem like it would make any sense that you'd call the movie 1900, but it has to do with the slang of how Italians refer to various centuries of art. So Novecento actually literally means 900. It's like a shortened version of Mille Novecento. And that was a standard system for referring to different centuries of Italian art. This movie gets called Novecento. The better translation of that would be 20th century, though 1900 is the more literal translation. And then in the fascist period, there was a movement towards a style of art that they tried to brand as Novecento Italia, uh, which is that the fascist art was calling itself 20th century Italian art. And I'm sure that that wasn't lost on Bertolucci, that the question of the 20th century, the question of Novecento is the question of, well, is Italy in the 20th century going to be fascist or not? So I'm living in these two upstairs rooms of a really only half renovated row home, along with this sort of scumbag who's letting me live there for very, very cheap. Uh, and I'm originally living there with, with my girlfriend, though later on she moves back to Kentucky. Um, and I end up with a sort of weirdo activist friend of hers for a while. But um, I, I literally find a, a television, and by a television I mean like an old cathode ray tube television in the house, like in a basement somewhere. <laughs> and, I, and so I have it like in the closet in this room that I basically spend all my time in like the one room. There's like one room that's like the room that I sit in and basically smoke and read and watch things on this tube television in. And then the other room, which is where we sleep. And eventually it's where this dude is like, like pounding Miller High Life's every minute of the day that he's not working because that's his thing. <laughs> so you can imagine this insanity of living like this. Where it's like, I'm trying to be like, hey, do you want to eat something? And he's like, no, I'm fine. I'm just... <laughs> and I... I became sort of fascinated by this movie, though the version that I had was a four hour and 17 minute cut. So there's a full hour and 10 minutes extra that was in the version that we see now, the version that's now available uh, digitally. And it appears that uh, the, the whatever company released it, I think it's Paramount that released it in the US, has embargoed the four hour cut to to make sure that anybody who watches it now will get to see the full movie, which is, it's a much better movie. It makes more sense than the four hour version than I was used to. And it, it, though it was kind of like charming that it didn't quite make sense, it's better that it does make more sense. But I do think that like maybe a solid two thirds, maybe a half of that like full hour that was missing from the cut that I saw was was like like nudity and sex and, and stuff like that. Uh, Cause I remembered some of that stuff. I remembered the uh, organic wheat field, uh, but I did, <laughs> did not remember. <laughs> I did not remember. Uh, uh, I, I didn't remember, uh, for example, the boys comparing their penises to each other. Uh, yeah. Though, though that's like the least weird of other things. The, the, bit, the bit in that section was actually very confusing and very ambiguous in the four-hour cut that I remember. Um, though, again, this is me remembering things from... 12 years ago so take that for what you will i was in first and second grade <laughs> oh my gosh we were yeah stop blowing my mind <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm old but that's okay this is the, the economy has crashed now like 
solidly crashed twice since I graduated from college. So I have an excuse for not like ever moving along in my career. It's <laughs> <laughs> like solid, on. like, like literally the, the time that I'm, I'm, I'm describing to you here was like the last time the economy yeah. crashed. Like I had just finished graduate school. I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a writer. And, and until I, you know, catch a break, I'll just teach writing. Uh, Cause I, I can do that. And I was, uh, doing union organizing for the AFT and then it was like nobody could get a job in fact the only thing that anybody could get a job in was uh door-to-door canvassing for the presidential election and then in the uh census (laughs) so it's exactly like now (laughs) except there wasn't like a major pandemic (laughs) yeah A beard. I had a beard for a long time. I had a beard in the in the period of time which I am describing. I assure you, I did look like this dude. I'm not. I'm not going to have any proof of me because also, of course, I was a weirdo, so I wouldn't let people take photos of me. um, (laughs) But I did. I did look a lot, a lot like this dude in the front of that painting. The painting that uh, Bertolucci starts out 1900 with. He starts it with this very close zoom on this man's face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The beard. And this is so uh, a painting called The Fourth Estate by Giuseppe Pelliza da Volpedo, who was from, generally speaking, the same part of Italy where the film takes place. And he painted it, uh, I think, between the years of 1899-ish and 1901. So it's painted right around the time that the movie starts. And obviously he's portraying a large group of Italian peasants mm-hmm. sort of marching into the future, maybe walking off the fields on strike. And this is painted in a style which you cannot really see it all that great in the digital uh, version, but it is a style that's kind of like pointillism. It's what's called divisionist style where you do a lot of dots that sort of are visible right, and, from a yeah, distance. I hate summaries, probably because it, a large portion of my job involves telling people how to do them and grading them. But and I was I like feel- consciously thinking about their bias and how they're portraying it to me, which then I perceive yeah. as fact. I, at the same time, feel like for these two works, we're going to need some sort of summarizing to get through them because our typical listener isn't going to necessarily <laughs> know a single thing about either of these. Well, and some people will know Novacento. Novacento apparently has a cult following among weirdos like me. Um, it's also got De Niro and Depardieu. Yeah, it's kind of before they become a big deal, but yeah, you can tell obviously that they know what they're doing. I will start by just giving a quick outline of Filippo Tommaso Marinetti's life and like why he's important to the concept of this podcast. And then I'll throw it to you, Anna, who will give us a, a summary of what in the hell happens in this weird ass novel he writes. Oh no. <laughs> That's on me. Okay. Yes.
Marinetti was born in 1876 in, of all places, Alexandria, Egypt. So he was an Italian-African, if you will. His father and mother weren't actually married, technically speaking, which would have been strange for, again, uh, somebody who's coming out of uh, Catholic culture. And uh, they were sort of intellectuals. His father was there as part of the uh, Pasha of Egypt's drive to modernize that section of the Ottoman Empire. He ends up in Paris in the early 20th century, and he's going in artistic circles as a poet. He's involved in this sort of commune-style group called the Abbé I'm not speaking French on the reg, so you'll have to forgive me if I, my pronunciation is a bit splotchy. Uh, but, <laughs> but, so he's there in 1908-ish. Um, uh, they'd just been founded in 1906, and they would <laughs> go bust by uh, 1908. So <laughs> this little commune that he's a part of isn't like long lived, but you know, it's the kind of thing that people were doing in the early 20th century as I would say an explicit effort to try and figure out what 20th century art was going to look like. I don't know much about this particular group, but it's been described as symbolist and in some ways utopian. At least one of the people who was in that group was a fan of Cubism, which was just starting to get going around this time. At any rate, you can certainly see the influence of symbolism in uh, Mafarka. And the early schools of what we would end up calling modernism in one way or another are at first realism in the theater, and I would argue naturalism and social realism in the novel, and then taking that this step further to things like symbolism. Once it starts to get weirder, then it's a little bit more obvious that this is modernist. This is trying to do something different, something of an avant-garde aesthetics. Well, Marinetti obviously breaks with this group, and he writes his futurist manifesto while in Paris in 1909. So he's at least bilingual in uh, Italian and French. I wouldn't be surprised if he also spoke Arabic, but I, don't quote me on that. I don't know for a fact. Supposedly, one of the inspiring uh, events that led him to this manifesto was a car wreck. He claims that he emerges from the car crash, a new man, a futurist. The manifesto is very obviously advocating for a new type of art, a more vibrant, a more active type of art, an art that uh, seeks the aesthetic of the automobile and of the airplane. So keep in mind, the Wright brothers do their first flight at Kitty Hawk in December of 1903. So Marinetti writing the Futurist Manifesto, and then Mafarka in 1909 is only six years after the successful uh, design and flight of an airplane. He is trying to do something that certainly has science fiction elements to it. That Futurist Manifesto also is, in ways that seem, looking backward, bizarrely pro-war. It's explicitly not only anti-feminist, but even anti-woman. It's anti-religion. It claims art, in fact, can be nothing but violence, cruelty, and injustice. He's 
looking for something that I would describe as a sort of expression of sheer will on the part of the artist. I see influence in that manifesto and in the Mafarka novel from Nietzsche, and maybe not even from a very deep understanding of Nietzsche, but certainly from a notion of the Superman, the Ubermensch. Marinetti is a man who wants to create new worlds and destroy the old worlds, and he sees Mafarka as, as doing the same. Now, the futurists, as they grow as a group and become more specifically an Italian group, their politics goes in a few different directions. There are futurists who identify as anarchists, and there are futurists who later end up becoming fascists. So it isn't just one specific political strain of thought, but you can see in that founding manifesto that it's going to have a tendency towards the reactionary right wing. Not necessarily. And the counterpoint to that that we get and that I'd like to do in a future episode is the Russian futurists like Mayakovsky, where you get a explicitly communist version of futurism, sort of science fiction notion of how the future will destroy the old world, but that it will bring in a better world of ease and equality rather than this constant violence and predation that we see in Mafarka. Now, for the Italian futurists, most of them, I think it's fair to say most of them end up fascists. I don't know if there's any way of technically calculating that. I've seen people try and hedge and say, well, it's true that many of them were fascists. But then it's a question of, well, what do you consider a futurist? Is it just like the top level poets, writers, painters, playwrights, orators, et cetera, et cetera? Or is it also like everybody who's interested in that art? Is it also like we see in Novacento, the woman who likes to drive cars and write bad poetry? She's a futurist too. She might not mm -hmm. be anybody that anybody's ever heard of, but for most people who even know what it was, that would be their access point. Most people mm -hmm. are not Marinetti. And given that Italy did go fascist, and given the way that politics goes, that doesn't necessarily mean that the actual majority of people were fascist. Still, eh, most people were fascist. And we'll get into, with Novacento, that question of what does it mean to be a fascist? Think of when De Niro's character is accused of being a fascist. He says, I'm not a fascist. Well, nobody cares that you walked out of that one meeting, dude. Like, if you're along for the ride and don't stand up and say, stop, you're on the train. And so it's not for nothing that Marinetti, 10 years after writing the Futurist Manifesto, actually writes the Fascist Manifesto in 1919. This is right at the end of the First World War. Italy is technically on the winning side of this war, but just got its ass kicked by Austria and Germany and <laughs> wasn't able to get any of the goodies that it was promised out of the peace conference because basically the Brits and the Americans didn't take the Italians seriously. And some of that is basically straight up racism. Also, some of that is maybe if you guys would have done a better job in the war, we'd have give you some goodies. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted uh, sections of Dalmatia, what we would now call the former Yugoslavia. So they were thinking of areas in what's now Croatia as being potentially Italian. There were a bunch of uh, islands in the Adriatic that they we're thinking of as Italian. They wanted more land in, in the Alps uh, to be given to them from Austria. That was the whole point of them fighting in the war. And they were actually like shopping for the first year of the war. Like, well, which side do you think we should come in on? And who's going to give us the better deal? Which is never really a good reason to go into a war. I suppose if you learn anything from the First World War, it's mm. don't do war. <laughs> yeah, man, it's not fun. <laughs> it's not cool. It's not cool. Can't, <laughs> cannot recommend. I won't be home by Christmas. Yeah, cannot recommend. 
Zero out of ten. Don't recommend. Yeah. No, you know, in Mafarka, Mafarka, uh, Marinade definitely does recommend. Uh, and to be fair, he did put his money where his mouth is. He at least uh, was involved in the Italo-Turkish War and the Balkan Wars that preceded the First World War as a correspondent. So he at least saw it. He volunteered in the First World War itself in a cyclist division, which, cool historical footnote, existed in the First World War. And then they realized, well, it's not really uh, the best mode of transportation when you're trying to fight battles in mountains, which, again, also can't recommend fighting battles in mountains but if you're going to fight a battle in a mountain don't bring a bicycle it won't be of much use to you (laughs) i mean your legs will be jacked if you're fighting a war in the mountains with bikes that means you're probably not from the mountains so you don't know them that well and you're gonna get your ass kicked yeah well it's just a bad idea (laughs) i think the lesson of fighting wars in mountains is everybody gets their ass kicked you're mainly fighting the mountain and then there's also bullets if we ever get around to reading Farewell to Arms, we'll see just how absurd uh, fighting in mountains is. Though I don't think that Hemingway goes into near as much detail as I'd like, I'd, I'd like to. I don't know of novels that actually dramatize that front, but it's a ridiculous front. I mean, in some cases, they were literally mountain climbing and shooting at each other at the same time. I mean, it's the Alps. It's not like some hills. Oh. Unlike his artistic rival, Gabriella D'Annunzio, Marinetti actually does like want to be involved in war. It's not that he just likes the idea of war. We're starting to see some uh, interesting parallels b- between some totally normal Italian dudes. Do you think so? <laughs> <laughs> he also plays a part in the sort of reaction to the First World War, which is uh, in large part these statements and Mussolini's involved in this too that like anyone who retreats is a traitor and such which is in some ways equivalent to the rhetoric of the stab in the back that we get uh, most infamously coming out of Germany. 1919 he writes the fascist manifesto as Mussolini's picking up steam and if you read the fascist manifesto it's surprisingly quite a bit further to the left than you might think. Uh, And this is true generally of fascist politics, that it tends to start out as a populist movement for sure. And then politically speaking, uh, tends to borrow from both the right and the left. But then as those movements gain power and consolidate around a strong man, they tend to get pulled gradually to the right. And I suppose there's some question about whether the kinds of more socialistic policies that we see in early fascist platforms are basically just bait to try and get the working class on board, or whether they represent actual evolutions in those parties uh, from something that's a little bit more complex and syncretic to something that's just more like stupidly right-wing what we'd expect from a fascist party. Biden. <sighs> yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, we today are in this, this very strange time as well, whereas there's a question of like which direction each political party is going to flank. I think that's sort of what you're suggesting, right? Where we see yep. the supposedly left party trying to outflank the supposedly right party to the right and vice versa. We see populist Trumpist politics trying to outflank the Democrats to the left. And we see uh, centrist democratic politics trying to outflank uh, what I would call straight up fascism to the right in terms of racial rhetoric. It's not good. I can't recommend this either. Any time travelers who might be listening. Hi, this is Frank in Post. I'm just going to drop in a note here that the discussion of election year politics is already several months or what might seem like several years old. 
I think at this point, there's less question of the Trumpist Republicans outflanking the Democrats to the left and more just the typical centrist Democratic running to the middle that we've seen in election cycles of years past. So Marinetti breaks with the fascist party supposedly in, I think, 1920, which is odd. It's about a year after he writes that manifesto, and it's because he's calling them reactionary. Now, fascism is always a reactionary ideology, like by definition. So I think that's strange, but maybe that indicates something about what I was talking about before, where these fascist parties start out as having a bigger tent than what we imagine them having. He resigns from the fascist party, and then is out of politics for three years. Well, when he comes back in 1923, by then uh, Mussolini's already in power. Mussolini takes power in 1922. Marinetti ends up having a sort of on-again, off-again, it's complicated type relationship to the fascist party then for the rest of his life. Uh, <laughs> he dies in 1944, so he doesn't see the end of the Second World War. The fascist party in Italy, unlike the Nazis, does not have a specific notion of the art that it wants to promote. It doesn't do the kind of anti-modernist stuff that we see in Germany. It doesn't accuse avant-garde artists of being communists or Jews. But then again, like the defensive rhetoric against this is that kind of defensive rhetoric that isn't really defense either. It's like, oh no, I swear none of us are Jewish. Okay, well, then maybe that wasn't the point that you should have fought. It gives you a sense of, of the kinds of danger that people were, were under, I suppose, and where people's bread was buttered. Eventually, during the fascist period, that Novecento Italia movement tries to brand itself as the official fascist style, but uh, again, there was never any like official style. The futurists were famous for obsessing over all parts of life. It was supposed to be a fully formed aesthetic. There was futurist poetry and futurist drama and futurist interior design, futurist cookbooks and futurist clothing. Marinetti was obsessed with the idea of changing Italian cuisine. He was very anti-pasta. It's like modern day cottage core. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's like the whole lifestyle of like, oh, it's simpler living in the country and sustaining yourself, which is bullshit. But for the futurist, it was like exactly the opposite. It would, it would be like the most complicated and uncomfortable yeah. thing possible. It's uh, like the whole female homosexual thing, like a cottagecore lesbian. It's like this whole thing. Well, I think that when we have these whole life aesthetics that we see in our world, in a certain sense, the futurists are the ones who start that. The idea that like all aspects of life should be aesthetic. I guess that it goes back to design movements in Paris at the turn of the century, Art Nouveau. But the first movement to take it and then try and make it like a radical thing, like a punk thing, if you will, by our idiom or a, a hardcore thing, that's the futurists. And then every movement after that tries to go in that direction. There's a great photo of uh, Marinetti eating pasta he swore was fake. He got in a major argument in the newspapers over whether this photo of him it's eating pasta like, was real or not. Because it's, it's not like Photoshop existed. Yeah, but you know, people could fake photos by cutting negatives and gluing things together in certain oh, ways. Oh, true. 
we talked about that with the clouds. Okay. Yeah, you see a lot of it in first world war photography. Some some of it's done in a sort of genuine way. It'd be like, well, we're going to put a couple photos together to make a better scene. And some of it's done like in an explicitly tricky way. There's a blurry line there. I have plenty more to say about futurism and about Mafarka. And somehow I left out like the most interesting thing. He starts this group, the futurists. And a lot of what they do is, oh, we're going to have a cabaret. We'll do a show. And then they just like insult the audience and start fights. Literal <laughs> fights with people like fist fights. And then okay. like what ends up happening is eventually people go to see the futurists, not because they want to check out the art or anything, but they just like bring rotten vegetables to throw at them. <laughs> And a lot of it would be like like a painter comes on stage and they hold the painting up and people throw vegetables at them and they just like end up sheltering behind their painting. <laughs> the story of this artistic movement is also like way stupider than I think we're we're appreciating. <laughs> Yeah. Why does that seem fun? It because we fun. always see it in films like an older food fight. And it's the way that people used to consume art. Remember, no TV, no radio. You go to the theater and, and it wasn't like the theater was a high art form. It was like everybody was at the theater and you'd usually like mm -hmm. bring food to eat. You know, mm -hmm. you, and you see this going back to the Renaissance, going back to the beginning of theater. People who teach Shakespeare always emphasize like, well, yeah, the people who are in the standing room, the groundlings, like they bring lunch with them. And if it wasn't any good, they'd throw the lunch at you. The Karens uh, couldn't rant on Facebook. Well, the Karens, well, the Karens would be up in the balcony, and they'd be bitching to each oh, other. Oh, true. <laughs> the groundlings would complain with their lunch. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. By the time the Dada's pick this up after the war, well, actually midway through the war, so you get a lot of people who are deserting from the war and going to Switzerland. And Dadaism is an explicitly anti-war movement in the beginning and then i think some would say a, some would say a uh, an anarchist movement certainly in many ways a nihilist movement and uh the dadas do things that are a lot like what the futurists are doing only there's either no political content whatsoever because they're just committed to gibberish or it's left wing in the fact that they're a group that's specifically based on trying to avoid the war and it's ideologically based on the notion that if this is what rationality brings us to then i guess we can't make sense anymore a lot of what they're doing in those cabarets then ends up being a lot like what the futurists are doing because they're provoking people the dadas weren't violent in the same way that the futurists were the futurists were very punk rock in that sense that there are always those dudes who are like not really in it for the art they're in it for the fights you know but even if the dadas weren't necessarily trying to pick fights with people they were like trying to pick fights in that sort of like Andy Kaufman-esque way. Like, what are you going to put up with before you start attacking me? You can just imagine like a dude in like a muscle shirt going like, ooh. Yeah. Well, you saw the picture of Marinetti, right? So, yeah. Like the muscle shirt of his day was like a really sick mustache. Though <laughs> so I don't know if you also saw the picture of Gabriella D'Annunzio. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Tell us about Mafarka the Futurist. My pleasure. <laughs> Where do we begin? To In our mothers. Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. In Mafarka the Futurist, an African novel, we meet warlord Mafarka Albar as he sees over his kingdom in Tel Al Kabir, 
I would argue that the events that take place are way less important than the themes and the ideas that he's obviously trying to um, portray as a futurist. He goes on various, I don't know what you would call them, adventures. Um, most people call, would call them wars against <laughs> other tribes. And he gets into various um, situations along the way. My favorite was when he described the horse Zeb. That was oh. my favorite part. Just for the absurdity factor. And that's really what we see in this novel. Almost sensationalist acts, you know, shocking for shock's sake. But again, that's only the surface level analysis here. There's so but much he else was also, going on. Sorry, but he was also telling that story to subdue Barbusa. Right. So it was supposed to be sensationalist so that he could subdue them and like overtake them. I'm right. I'm just speaking. I'm just speaking in the in the general sense, talking about the various things that he did over the course of this novel. He got his lands from his father, which he also overthrew. I'm not going to go into detail about the plot because I think that's a waste of time. If you're looking for something to say, get like, some well, fuel. why, why, and how did I get through that? Then I would read this book. <laughs> Um, but no, the major, the major things that we actually see in this novel is his views are apparent in the Orientalist backdrop. We also see extreme nationalism, um, toxic masculinity, dominance, machines described as people and animals. And these all really fit into the futurist vision. And I actually do have some notes on the Futurist Address. And also within that, we see the complete rejection of women, but also they're put on a pedestal in a way, if that makes sense. Which is weird, because then we get to the end and we see him taking care of his son, which actually turns out to be an airplane. And we also see the connections in 1900, because he, his brother, and his son are very homosexually oriented. But yet, women are even less than objects. Yeah. Also in this novel, we see distinct modernism and his descriptive style. According to Carol, I'm not going to pronounce her last name right, Carol Deeth from the foreword in the 1998 Middlesex University Press Edition, she comments that a lot of people during this time period actually found him to be, quote unquote, a new author in the way that he wrote, in the way that obviously he viewed things that were so, what we would call today, absurd. And that's what dates this novel. People would say that Marinetti has a death wish or is romanticizing death, but it may just be pure fascination with power, as found in modern technology, death, and therefore the will of man. The machinery and death references are actually just a front, along with the mistreatment of women. Through these outlets, a man like Marinetti is able to raise questions of control. All of these wishful manifestations, if living is in italics, then is death the opposite of the Futurist Manifesto? How much of it is an unwillingness to accept limitations? And how much is decadentist acts or shock for shock, as we like to say? We see it as an aim to cleanse the scum that represents the antithesis 
to a clean, homogeneous vision of the future of future power. Museums, libraries, and academies represent enemies to the children of the manifesto. The symbols of death and women take on a duality that the others do not. There are tools to use for the advancement of man while also hindering the progression of justice for more than the chosen. And here we see the roots of fascism because all of these represent a singular vision of power and everything else is unclean or must be eliminated. That was a lot. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. In that wholly consuming vision that this is not only how we are going to produce art, but this is how we should live our lives. Right. You see that tendency towards, ah, yes, we can create a perfect world, and I will tell you how. And I will tell you how. And the whole reason that it centers around the future is because there's power in the unknown. There's power in things that haven't taken place yet. When we think about the progression of our lives, we always tend to think, what's next? We rarely dwell on, what have we done? because that power has already been expended. We've already acted in that time continuum. <laughs> and if you, if you try to construct a whole artistic philosophy based on that notion, then you have an artistic philosophy that is aggressively refusing at any turn to think critically about history or about what the artist as a person might have done in their in in his or her own personal life mm -hmm. or about like mm -hmm. whether these characters are in the right or in the wrong right i mean if you think about like your your classic say tragedy structure it's often built around a notion of plot where you can look back on it and even if there isn't a definitive point you can at least argue over well this is where the hero went wrong this is where things went downhill this is where this person made a mistake this is where this person did something that was immoral and then karma caught up mm -hmm. but if you have an entirely forward-looking philosophy you're mm -hmm. just like refusing to second guess anything and that's the danger of it that's where the consequences mm -hmm. arise The vision that he sees of the future is a vision of rising above biology, I think. And this shades into his obvious misogyny, right? That he sees women as the embodiment of biology. That man, in a certain sense, he believes can in some way be less animal than woman. And that isn't really a new idea. It's something that goes back to uh, traditional Catholic and Christian visions of women as a weaker sex or as more susceptible to temptation. More virtuous. So therefore they should work in the home, blah, blah, blah. Well, simultaneously more, vir more <laughs> virtuous and more wicked because because they're women so we have to make it hard for them in both directions at the same time life is nothing without contradiction life as a woman is nothing without double binds we love it <laughs> it's fun come join the party <laughs> well well i think i think that like without knowing it uh marinetti does want to join the party though doesn't he right and that's that's a point that i tried to make yes yeah The misogyny of this novel, and if we want to get theoretical about it, maybe we could even say misogyny more generally, is based in this deep 
deep gnawing envy at the fact that women can create life this notion that like how dare they do this thing that i can't do and that's of course why mafarka has to create his own son and is engaged in this really bizarre and childish fight with kalubi over whether she can even see we never speak for what we really how you emphasized the weird animal machine hybrids too the war giraffes that kind of like catapults or trebuchets Mm -hmm. um there's some kind of a missile that's actually a bird the soldiers that are rabid dogs right and i was just going to mention i would put the dogs under that category too well yeah it's it's a sort of there's a sort of human animal hybridization going on and also an animal machine hybridization going on and then of course the culminating superhuman entity of the book gazorma the sleepless hero (laughs) is a humanoid airplane of some sort these bits where he's describing his son is like rhapsodizing over how much better he's going to be than every human are are really like deeply deeply weird even for a novel this weird and then the end where he like gets the boner that was a bit much rachel you didn't um i i feel i read the summary i i know but i feel like once you get to the end you're just like yeah he got i mean he got hard yeah whatever i mean that's not the worst it's it's a machine i like i know yeah i know but but like it's that fits in with the futurist. He gets these weird arm emotion. propeller boners first, though. There's like this weird moment where he's just like standing and his arms like like, like Buzz Lightyear like extend out. And, <laughs> I don't know. And then yeah, well we get the we get the literal boner later. You know what bugged me though in the chapter with his son as the airplane, they even sexualized the breeze. Like they're called oh, yeah. the teasing breezes. I'm oh, just yeah. like, are you kidding me? I everything well, is like, sexual. Also like seduced the wind nymph or something it's in a certain sense one version of what we see in this whether we're going to go back to orientalism or whether we're going to go back to decadentism or whether we're going to go back to ancient greco-roman mythology that so much of this is like look at me trying to do something new and it's like but i can think of a time when like actually you know people who have lived in the place where you lived have been making up stories about gods raping humans for a long time you're not really pushing the envelope you're just really into that right have you ever heard of zeus <laughs> yeah um hello yeah and so similarly this notion that like everything is sexualized we get that in we get that in some of those mythologies too it's very bizarre i i wonder whether we see that in decadentism as well i'm not as knowledgeable about it but my guess is that that that's carried over from decadentism and it's probably another thing in the whole bag of stuff that Gabriella D'Annunzio is doing in one way or another that Marinetti's swearing he's doing something different but eh, he's also kind of borrowing from him there 
if we remember our biography of Gabriella D'Annunzio, I mean, D'Annunzio was like sexualizing even just like being mean to people that was like sexual for him which is i suppose sadly more common than like sexualizing the breeze but the point is that it seems like sexuality for these totally normal dudes uh is just like a question of power more than anything else Thank you for giving us the time to share our ideas with you on The Pointless Century. If this episode seemed even more scatterbrained than usual, it's because it was actually one of the earliest ones that we recorded. At any rate, I hope that it was useful for you to get some introduction to the kinds of things that we will be talking about here. And in the next one or two episodes, however many it takes for me to piece this together, we'll be going into more depth on the film Novecento and the span of early 20th century Italian history. I'd like to thank our supporters Alexander Billet and James Robinson, and I hope that you all have a safe return to school.